Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have Andrew Caraba, MD, PhD, and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and a colleague of mine. And one of the real joys of being in academic medicine is that you get to work with somebody at various stages of their career. So uh, I worked with Dr. Caraba with Andrew when he was a fellow, and I have to admit that I had to work pretty hard to study up on patients so that he wouldn't know more than the attending. And now we work as colleagues, and I continue to learn from him. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Shul. Thanks so much for for having me. It's really an honor to be to be here. And yeah, I was. I don't think we worked together as a when I was a resident because I didn't because I did the short tracking. I didn't actually do an ID rotation like on the consult service until I was a fellow. But I remember you know seeing you seeing around the hospital, and I enjoyed working with you as a fellow. And it's it's great having you as a colleague now. Awesome. So short tracking. What does that mean? So the, the short tracking or fast tracking are the sort of colloquial terms for the ABIM research pathway. And it's a pathway I took advantage of. It's designed for people who are pretty sure that they want a, a heavy research career, you know, physician scientists. Mm-hmm. Typically, people who do this have done a PhD, but not, not everyone fits that category. And what it allows you to do is you do an internal medicine residency essentially in two years instead of three. And instead of that third year as a resident, you tack on an extra year as a fellow with 80% protected research time. And so I took advantage of that through my residency and fellowship here to get some extra protected research time as a, as a fellow and to get into ID faster since I knew that's what I wanted to do. Wow. So when we were working together, you had two years of residency under your belt, yet you seemed as knowledgeable as uh, or more so than most of the people that I work with. So that's yeah. it's pretty amazing. You're, you're too kind. Thank you, Shmuel. I'll give you the address later on to send the check. <laughs> so uh, you started your career at Northwestern, I believe? Yeah, that's right. So I did my undergraduate degree and my MD-PhD at Northwestern. And when I was an undergraduate, I was in the science program where we did sort of intense science classes and in, in all the, the sort of lab-based sciences. So it's it called the Integrated Science Program. And I was probably the the dumbest person in that program, but it, they really, my friends and classmates really pushed me to, to study hard and to love science. And I thought at the time when I was a, you know, a freshman in, or sophomore, I wanted to be a chemist, do a PhD in chemistry. And I was working in the summer for an oral surgery practice. Um, it was a, a family friend who worked in this practice and he got me a job basically assisting in these sort of outpatient procedures. And I got to take patients' blood pressures and sterilize instruments and I was like, oh, this is like, you know, interacting with patients and people is kind of fun. And my aunt, who is a physician, told me about these MD-PhD programs. And so then I applied to these MD-PhD programs and got into Northwestern's. And through my my research there, I, I fell in love with virology really quickly and was kind of trying to figure out what subspecialty or specialty worked well with that. And ultimately, I think infectious disease drew me in because of the not just the viruses, but the bacteria and the fungi and the fact that we get to, you know, interface with all the other specialties, you know, with surgeons, with obstetricians and gynecologists and transplanters, you know, doing transplant infectious disease. And so that's what kind of kind of drew me in was get to work with, you know, with with every aspect of medicine and and take care of patients across the hospital. Nice. And and you're a Chicagoan by uh, birth, correct? 
Yeah, that's right. I was I was born in Chicago, but grew up in the suburbs, and then spent you know basically about ten years in the city when I was doing my degrees. So yeah, definitely consider myself still a Chicagoan and a, and a Midwesterner, but happy to be in Baltimore now. And what drew you to Baltimore? So as I, as I mentioned, my aunt, who was a physician, actually was on was was here at Hopkins for a good part of her career, and so we would come to Baltimore to visit my cousins and my aunt and uncle. And so I always had a sort of very positive impression of the city and had fun memories here. And when I met my wife in medical school, she was from Maryland. And so we would come and visit her family after we got we got married and would occasionally visit Baltimore to see some of her friends that had moved here. And so I always thought it was a, a nice city to to visit. And when it came time to look at places to do further training, you know, I was really drawn by Hopkins both their sort of strong reputation as a, as a great clinical center, but also a, a sort of a research powerhouse. And it just made a lot of sense to, to come here because uh, we had family nearby. And it's obviously a, a great place to, to train and, and to be a young faculty as well. So I'll say for uh, people who don't know, uh, there is another Dr. Caraba at Johns Hopkins. And there's also, I think, a couple Carabas that are going to be in the class of 2040. And so it's, it's actually uh, was was quite fun when there were fellows to have the Andrew Caraba that I'm speaking with say, hey, you know, there's this case in the lab that the other Dr. Caraba has identified as interesting. Uh, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, my my wife, Sarah, is also an infectious disease. And so, you know, from People who are outside of ID sort of look at us and say, oh, you guys do the same thing. But within the ID field, we're very different. And she does more clinical research, is very interested in gram-negative resistance and does general infectious disease and spends a lot of time doing antimicrobial stewardship and, and infection control. And then I'm a virologist and do a lot of lab work and do transplant ID. So, you know, I, I think we're, we, we have different interests, but we do get to discuss cases, you know, over the dinner table or, or bounce ideas off each other. And so it's great to have that, that resource at home. Awesome. So uh, when you first came, and this is still an area of interest to you, you were our expert on herpes viruses. Tell us about that work. Yeah, so I did my, for my PhD, I studied herpes simplex virus and was interested in how the different entry receptors for the virus impact pathogenesis through different routes of, of infection. And didn't necessarily plan on continuing to be a herpes virologist in the next phase of my career. But when I came time to you know choose a lab for my my fellowship research, and I was lucky to to join up with Andrea Cox here, who is you know a really amazing physician scientist herself and a viral immunologist. And I knew I wanted to learn more immunology. And she had this project that would really benefit from the use of a neurotropic viral infection as, as a way to investigate this, this new immune pathway or this, this possible novel modulator of the immune system. And so I was like, well, I, I know how to infect mice with, with herpes and, and study that. So that's, that's kind of what I, I started doing for my fellowship and what my, my case based on. And I still work on, on HSV and have expanded somewhat into CMV because of its you know, unfortunate ubiquitousness within transplant ID. And so those are the, the viruses that I, I primarily worked on prior to COVID-19, which then, as I think many of us did, started to work a little bit on SARS-CoV-2 or to incorporate COVID-19 into some of the research that we're doing. Great. So I'm going to take a, a little bit of a detour because many of our listeners are outside the country. You mentioned the word K. What is a K? Why does one get one? And how does one get one? Yeah, sure. So K refers to a type of NIH grant. So there's like sort of the alphabet soup of NIH grants. Many people are might familiar with an R or an R01. That's kind of like a, a big grant that a, a principal investigator might apply for that would support 
research on a particular topic for a number of years for you know an established investigator. So a K is is a mentor, a career development grant, and the two most common ones that we see for physicians and physician scientists at least are KOAs and K23s. And it's an opportunity to provide salary support, so protect you know at minimum seventy five percent of the time for for research in a mentored setting and start to develop an area of expertise and sort of transition from you know a postdoctoral fellow to you know independent investigator. And the idea is that at the end of that five years, you would be able to apply for an R um, and sort of get your own funding. So it's a, it's a really nice opportunity for those of us who are physician scientists who you know need and want that protected time early in our careers to, to kind of develop our our research program. And in terms of getting a mentor, so you're I'm going to say lucky, but I think people create their own luck. Luck is important, but people also create their own luck to have Dr. Cox as your mentor. How how do you how do you choose a mentor? Uh, what are the things that go into it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, my approach has been sort of threefold. So one is, you know, is, you know, can you do you get along with the person? And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can you have open and honest communication with them? Because that's really key, I think, in a mentor, a mentee relationship. That's, you know, step one. And I think step two is, you know, speaking from someone who's trying to seek a mentor is is what's that mentor's track record? You know, if they have a, a track record of advising individuals and mentoring people to to success, whatever their definition of success is, I think, you know, makes it more likely that you would have success in that in that relationship as well. And then finally, is there is there some sort of thing that, you know, a synergy you can find between the two? And I, you know, I'm just going to use again myself and Dr. Cox as an example. You know, Dr. Cox is really a, a world expert on viral immunology but didn't know that much about herpes viruses. And that's where I came in to sort of fit that niche in this particular project. And, you know, I think we've had a, a really successful, you know, time in that mentor-mentee relationship. So come R01 time, one of the things that, and, and also with the K, I believe one of the things that's important is how are you going to differentiate yourself from the mentor? They do want you to hang on to Superman or in this case, Superwoman's cape, but they want you at some point to release. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, again, that was also helpful. The, the other way you can kind of spin that is to have, you know, a mentorship team or a co-mentor that might add something different. And you're sort of, you know, combining these two different things that that people do to create a new path for yourself. And my, so my primary co-mentor on the K is Nate Archer, who's um, in the dermatology department and an expert in skin pathogenesis. I'm sorry, skin pathobiology. And so, uh, but also not a virologist. And so, you know, he's really helped me try to work on particularly the inflammation part in the skin and the, in the mouse model I use for my, for my case. So, you know, in that way, I, I differentiate myself, hopefully from both, both of my mentors and kind of taking this path on my own. So one of the questions that comes up, and I'm hoping that you have some insight on this is, is why do herpes virus reactivate people, um, go through life and then all of a sudden boom they have a uh, herpes reactivation sometimes it's it maybe it's pretty clear hey they've been heavily immunosuppressed and not on an antiviral but, but what are some of the factors that lead to reactivation yeah i think you know in our patient population most often it's due to increased immunosuppression and so if you remove some of those immune controls that are keeping the virus at bay it'll they will the viruses will reactivate and immune competent individual you know, they still see reactivation events. And that is it most likely due to some sort of stress event. And there's been a couple of different sort of pathways linked to this. But the idea is that 
the individual is stressed in some way, and that stress signal is received through molecular mechanisms by the virus, and it starts uh, the replication process to then spread and, and you know, from the virus's, you know, perspective, sorry to anthropomorphize viruses, but, you know, the, their goal is to then get out and infect another host. Mm -hmm. And when you say stress, uh, physiological stress, how about emotional stress? Is that related or is, uh, is it all tied in together? Yeah, I, I think that the data on emotional stress is is less well developed, but I think smart people will tell you that that certainly can can lead to the same types of physiological stress, at least on a molecular level, that would lead to a reactivation event. Great. All right. So now switching gears in uh, March 2020, which is now uh, three years behind us, uh, a new virus came onto the scene in the U.S. and has changed all of our careers. Tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing with COVID and in particular, something called CeroNet, S-E-R-O-N-E-T. Yeah, sure. So like many universities, research was essentially halted for a period of time unless you were working on SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. And so, you know, being a virologist and being an infectious disease specialist, I you know tried to find opportunities to help out. And at the time, I was doing some work on inflammatory cytokines in CMV and transplant recipients. And Andrea, my mentor and I kind of talked and said, you know, I bet this, this seems like a very inflammatory virus. You know, we should try to figure out what type of inflammatory pathways are being activated. And, and both she and I have an interest in a pathway called the inflammasome, and, and that's often seen as elevated levels of IL-18 in the blood. And so we started collecting samples. I won't get into the whole story about how it's, it's a require like its own separate podcast of all the work that went into getting samples from patients that were hospitalized with COVID. But we had these samples and we started measuring them and, and the cytokines and seeing that indeed we did see increased inflammatory cytokines, particularly IL-18 and, and IL-6 as others had seen. And around this time, the NIH had put out a call for the centers that were going to study the immune response to SARS-CoV-2. And at that time, like a vaccine was like way far away in the horizon. So the vaccines weren't really part of this mm -hmm. initial plan. And the idea was to look at antibodies and other sort of serological markers that correlate with disease. And so Andrea and um, Sabra Klein here were, were chosen as the, uh, to lead sort of Hopkins' effort. And so they were the, the primary PIs of this effort here. And, and Andrea asked me to, to co-write one of the underlying projects in this sort of massive grant. This is, again, getting back to the alphabet soup of NIH grants. This is a, a U grant, which basically means there are several projects underneath like a, a big thing, and there are usually several centers that have these. And so we put an application and we're thankfully awarded the grant and chosen as one of these centers. And there's, to be honest, I can't remember how many centers there are, but there's many, several dozen centers across the country that try to work together to understand the immune response to to this virus and, and the pandemic. And as time has gone on, things have shifted to, to again, to look at vaccine responses. And so it's this big sort of network of, of investigators, really smart people who are trying to figure out, you know, what we can do to both surveil in terms of the number of infections and define, you know, correlates of protection and, and immunity to the virus. So it's, that's sort of CERNET in a nutshell. We actually have our CERNET investigators meeting at the NIH coming up in a few weeks, which I'm really looking forward to getting to meet face to face some of these people mm -hmm. we've, we've talked to on these calls for the last two years. So my simplistic understanding of COVID is that you go through various phases and not everybody is going to go through all the phases. The first phase is sort of the pre-infection phase where you're at risk for infection, but don't have it yet. And then you have the acute infection 
and then uh, things are driven by the the virus and the immune system's response to the virus. And then you you get to this place where there isn't a ton of virus around, but the the disease, if there's any, is driven by the immune response and the damage that the virus has done. And then finally, uh, sort of intermixed in there is super infections. And of course, in immunocompromised patients, it's not as neat and tidy as what I mentioned. And probably in regular people, it's not as neat. Well, not saying that immune compromised people aren't regular people, but in non-immune compromised people, not as neat and tidy. What has Cyrenet taught you about that simplistic sequence that I mentioned? Yeah, I think that 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 is a good basis of sort of the understanding in terms of of how things initially played out, certainly. And I think what we've learned through CIRNET is that there are subpopulations or people with certain conditions where this doesn't go exactly, you know, the same way. And particularly as people get repeat infections or you layer vaccinations on top of that, the course of the disease, I think, is is more nuanced and harder to pin down on that sort of exact trajectory. And what we've learned, I think, particularly with immunocompromised individuals, is as time's gone on, they thankfully are less likely to you know to develop severe disease like we saw a lot in you know the spring of 2020. But we're now left with a situation where many of them have you know persistent viral replication that then can sort of develop these sort of recrudescent cycles where they then develop symptoms. Uh, and particularly for patients with solid organ transplants, you know, thinking like lung transplant patients, this can be very detrimental because it damages the graft and predisposes them to rejection. And so we're at a stage now, I think, where one of the big challenges is trying to figure out how to clear the virus from these patients that are immunocompromised for one reason or another and, and aren't able to clear it on their own. Thanks. Now, we've been talking about biorepositories since forever. And I guess maybe one of the positives, if there is a, a, a silver lining of COVID, is that it's really accelerated that with things like Seronet. What are some of the lessons of developing Seronet that can be applied to other biorepositories? Yeah, I think the, the biggest one is you need to have protocols in place that are easily adaptable and flexible for whatever is coming down the pipe. And, you know, it was, we weren't even out of the COVID pandemic when, you know, MPOX kind of came on the scene. And it, you know, we, sir, it, it's a little bit different because the biosafety regulations of MPOX are, are somewhat different than SARS-CoV-2. But that's an example of how you need to be ready for the, for the next thing in your sort of biorepository protocol. We were lucky that there was an existing protocol here that was, you know, for sort of pandemic viruses, if you will, like, or pandemics. And it was really built initially out of the concern that maybe Ebola would be the, the thing that we had to deal with. And so we were able to pivot quickly to, to SARS-CoV-2 here. And the idea is to not have to build it from the ground up or, you know, to use the expression, you know, build the plane while you're flying it and be, be prepared ahead of time. Now, it seems like um, when things were done in a more ad hoc way, that regulations were looser around transfer of biological materials between institutions, and that now it's become much more formalized. Have, have you noticed that? Have you seen it? Have you just not been around long enough to see what the previous <laughs> was like? Yeah, no, it is It is a very formal process, and I, I think that's mostly for good reasons. You know, you know, we get frustrated with the red tape sometimes, but you know, ultimately, you know, we need to be very respectful and, and cautious about patient data and patient samples, particularly when, 
you know, genetics may be involved and in, in sequencing of people's DNA. And so I do think that those sort of safeguards need to be in place and we need to be able to, to track specimens, particularly specimens that might be infected with a dangerous virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that there, there is a lot of regulation around that. And I'm sure it could be streamlined and simplified, but it's definitely not a, a space where we want to go to where, you know, people just hand off whatever samples they have to whoever asked for them, and you never know where they end up. Yeah, you certainly don't want to find yourself in congressional hearings trying to explain why uh, this outbreak in a faraway city was caused by a strain that came out of your laboratory. Exactly. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, people have tried to connect what we're dealing with now to things that we know. So we are, um, or at least we think we know, influenza. We certainly know a ton more about influenza. We knew a ton more about influenza than we did about COVID. And oftentimes, people would would say this is X times worse than influenza, or this is the same as influenza. And you've actually looked at the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 versus influenza, and published in CID. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was sort of the product of the work I alluded to earlier that we started in the sort of the beginning of the of CIRNET, um, where we were measuring cytokines in the plasma from patients who were hospitalized with COVID. And you know, Andre and I were were thinking about those data as we were getting them and saying, well, what's the what's the right control? And a lot of people were con- were doing similar work and controlling it with healthy patients that weren't infected. And we said, well, that's I think important, but wouldn't it be more relevant? to look at another respiratory viral disease and say, you know, is this just what things look like when you get a bad viral pneumonia? Or is there something specific to SARS-CoV-2? And so we partnered with this one of the influenza groups here, uh, the Sears cohort, which looks at influenza surveillance. And they had a number of patients, uh, samples banked from, from prior years that had been hospitalized with influenza. And so that was a good comparison to patients who were hospitalized with COVID-19. And when we when we compared their sort of inflammatory cytokine profiles, we found that there were some distinct differences. And in particular, influenza, severe influenza seemed to be marked by a very interferon, type 1, type 1 and type 3 interferon sort of driven signature. Whereas what we were seeing more in SARS-CoV-2 was more myeloid and, and macrophage driven, a lot of IL-6, as I mentioned, IL-18 and, and TNF-alpha. And so that gave us a hint that these weren't, you know, this wasn't just oh, you hit the lungs with a lot of virus and this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Then there's something distinct about these two viruses and the types of disease they, they cause and that may have implications in terms of, of therapies and also how you might think about protecting people in the future. And IL-18 made an appearance here for somebody like me who thought they knew immunology. What is IL-18 exactly? Yeah, so IL IL eighteen I mentioned a couple of times. So there there's this innate inflammatory immune response called the inflammasome. It was discovered sort of in the late aughts, if you will, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, around those that time. And since then, there's a lot of work done on this pathway. And, and I, essentially, it's part of the innate immune system, meaning this doesn't require you to have, have seen a pathogen or something before, but your cells recognize danger either in the form of you know damaged cells or a pathogen. And activate this pathway that leads to an inflammatory type of cell death called pyroptosis, which is sort of like Greek meaning like fiery death, but also the release of, of a couple of different cytokines. But the primary ones that we think about are IL-1 beta and IL-18. And the reason we spend a lot of time talking about IL-18 is that IL-1 beta, while it is released by cells, 
it tends to be localized to tissue. So if you look at, at for example, the lungs of, of patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection, you'll see a lot of IL-1 beta there, but it doesn't make its way into the plasma. And I, I don't have a, a, a perfect explanation for that is, but I've heard that it's, you know, gets inactivated or gets cleaved, you know, sort of through the, through the grapevine by other people. But IL-18 is detectable in the plasma and it has kind of a big dynamic range that can go up and go back down depending on how much inflammatory activation is going on. And so it's a marker that we've relied on as sort of a, a guide to how much inflammatory activation is going on in the, in the host because you can measure it so easily in the plasma. And is it like similar situations where you get the Goldilocks, like you have to have not too much or not too little, just the right amount? Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. The, you know, the cytokines are, are meant to signal to other cells, you know, danger that something bad is happening and we need to, you know, activate the adaptive immune response as well as other innate immune cells to sort of clean up the damage or clear the pathogen. But too much of it just leads to nonspecific damage and can kind of contribute to sort of the inflammatory pathology and then sort of sepsis-like phenotypes that we sometimes see in severe COVID-19. Great. Now, uh, is some of the work that you've done and are doing, is that going to shed any light on, I don't know what it's called in uh, March 3rd of 2023, long COVID, PASC, PCC? Yeah. I, so I, I haven't done as much work on long COVID or, or PASC as some colleagues here at, at Hopkins, but I think that it seems to me from what I've read that there is some sort of dysregulated immune response and whether or not that's inflammasome or some other immune response, I think is, is not been exactly worked out, but that this dysregulated immune response is, is driving some of these phenotypes or some of these symptoms in people. And if we can figure that out, then hopefully we can figure out, you know, the, the cure to that. Great. Great. So now shifting gears, I think that one of the amazing things about working at Hopkins and working with people like you is that aside from being an accomplished, uh, already accomplished, but one day we'll all be working for you, investigator, you're also a clinician and a good clinician. And I'm going to uh, run a case by you to see how you would tackle it. Okay, sure. All right. So a 44-year-old woman with history of ALL, that's acute lymphocytic leukemia, for which she underwent an allogeneic bone marrow transplant several years ago. Her course is also significant for hypogamma globulinemia and for having a splenectomy. She now, several years after the transplant, several years after the splenectomy, don't know what her IgG level is today presents to the emergency department with altered mental status, fever to 100.4, septic shock, labs that show leukocytosis, bandemia, thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of around 23,000, acute kidney injury, and then she has a seizure. So you are called as the infectious disease doctor. What is your differential diagnosis? Yeah, so this, you know, obviously I'm concerned about either undifferentiated septic shock or if I'm trying to localize it, very concerned about a you know encephalitis or meningoencephalitis picture here, given the, the seizure and the altered mental status. And so I would be treating her pretty broadly, probably with vancomycin, cefepime, and then also an antiviral like acyclovir. You know, being a herpes virologist, I'm always worried about herpes mm -hmm. plus encephalitis. And so I would I would probably start all of those as quickly as I could while getting additional studies. And given the sort of concern for bacterial meningitis in this case, I'd probably also recommend dexamethasone because of its ability to lessen uh, some, you know, sequelae from particularly strep pneumo uh, meningitis. 
So uh, you mentioned additional studies. Is cerebrospinal fluid one of those? And how do you tackle it with a platelet of 20,000? Yeah, I mean, I, I think CSF analysis is really key in this case, in addition to, you know, blood cultures, probably urine culture, and, you know, just given the, the immunocompromised status, a, a respiratory, you know, viral panel and, and culture as well. But in, you know, we're lucky here at, at Hopkins to have some really excellent proceduralists and, and interventional radiologists that are comfortable performing LPs with low platelet counts, particularly if they can, you know, run some platelets while the procedure is going. So, I'm not sure this is something that would be done necessarily at the bedside right there, but I, I, I think we probably would be able to get CSF in this patient, hopefully within the first 24 to 48 hours. Great. So uh, what was done for this patient was a CT scan of the head. Antibiotics were given initially. Don't want to wait on the antibiotics while the person's at CT scan. CT scan was done, no acute abnormalities, and a CSF was obtained showing, depending on the tube, two or 3,000 White cells, 90% neutrophils, 1,000 RBCs, glucose of 43 with a normal range of 50 to 75, so hypoglacorachia. I love saying that word, <laughs> and a protein of around 200. So now the uh, differential diagnosis is narrowing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is pointing very much towards like a bacterial cause, although, you know, there, there are cases of particularly HSV or VZV encephalitis that can, that can at certain points in the disease present with a more of a neutrophilia, but the low glucose is making me think more bacteria at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, in terms of herpes encephalitis, do we know is that the same trigger as other, uh, and, and by that I mean HSV-1, not the HSV-2 meningoencephalitis, but HSV-1 encephalitis, is that the same trigger, again, some sort of stress pro-inflammatory cytokines that leads to that? Yeah, we, we think so, but we don't, you know, we don't really know if, you, you know, if you think about it, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70% of the world population is infected with this virus, but certainly not that many people develop encephalitis from it. And so exactly what leads to reactivation and sort of going down the wrong way, you know, going into the central nervous system instead of out to the periphery is still unknown. Great. So in terms of the potential bacteria for meningitis, your pretest probability is pretty high for pneumococcus because of the asplenic condition, hypogammaglobulinemia, and the meningitis presentation. The patient has a CSF that is antigen positive. Uh, CSF culture is negative, and blood cultures were positive for pneumococcus. Tell us a little bit about that discrepancy and why does that happen? Yeah, so Probably in this case, I'm guessing what happened is that, you know, because the there was some delay in getting the CSF and antibiotics were started appropriately, you know, mm-hmm. as soon as the patient was evaluated, that it it probably sterilized the CSF such, or at least made it such that the bacteria wouldn't grow. And I learned this trick from Karen Carroll, our, the director of our microbiology lab here a few years ago, that that strep antigen that we often see get sent from the urine, they can run that same test on CSF. Mm. And it's it, at least talking to Dr. Carroll, it's very sensitive for picking up strep pneumo meningitis. And so it sounds like in this case, this is a case of strep pneumo meningitis. You've got the positive bacterial cultures in the in the blood. You've got a CSF profile that's certainly consistent with bacterial meningitis. You've got a clinical syndrome that's consistent with it. And then you have the antigen positivity in the CSF. So it all sort of lines up. And one of the things that we sometimes forget, but I think we never should forget, is that asplenic patients, it's not just for the textbooks that they're at risk for pneumococcus. They really are at risk for pneumococcus. And when they get sick, then uh, it may just be the flu 
but it could also be the beginning of an overwhelming hyposplenic septic shock due to pneumococcus. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got to respect the pneumococcus. You really do. Now, this particular patient, in addition to uh, the uh, strep pneumo in the uh, blood, also ended up having a uh, oligoarthritis. And we don't really know whether the oligoarthritis was due to the bacteria directly or due to immune complexes, but they did end up getting treated for a prolonged course because uh, concerned that they might have had a pneumococcal arthritis. And I tend to think that pneumococcus anywhere outside the respiratory tract and the ears as part of the respiratory tract is, is particularly dangerous. So, but th- thankfully, very uh, sensitive to multiple antibiotics and in this particular case to uh, cephalosporins, penicillin. We got one more minute on the uh, podcast. Before we leave, what's hot in HSV? So, you know, I think the two things come to mind. One is, you know, some vaccine candidates that are are being tested. Some are mRNA-based, some are subunit-based, and I'm always hopeful that we'll have a vaccine for this virus because it causes a lot of problems. We spend a lot of time thinking about it. And then on the other side, and the sort of basic biology side, the virus continues to teach us things about the immune system and cell biology. There was a paper that came out last year that, you know, revealed a sort of a new way to activate type 1 interferon based on HSV-1 work. So, uh, an important virus to continue to study, and hopefully we'll have a, a vaccine for it in our lifetime. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks, everyone, for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye. Thanks, Shmuel.